G'day everybody, uh, today's Bible passage comes from John chapter 2 verses 12 through 25. Just give you a minute to look for those in your, in your Bibles and whatnot. John chapter 2 starting at verse 12. After this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money charges and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Thank you, Josh. It's good to be here. My name's Chris, if you don't know me, and welcome to church this morning. Keep your Bibles open, or I think on your leaflet there's there's got an outline of the talk and the passage there. Let's pray. Our loving Father... um, This happened long ago, but we trust that it's recorded for us by your Holy Spirit, and he who still speaks to our hearts will take this word and open it up for us, and we pray that that's what would happen right now, so that we would understand what your will is for our lives. We do want to hear you, so please give us hearts that are willing, minds that are open to listen to you and to be transformed in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so question. Where do you go to to meet with God? Of course, that's a, oh, there's an assumption there, isn't there, <laughs> in that question that you do. Uh, even if you don't, where would you go? Where would you go to meet with God? Most of us probably would choose somewhere quiet. Maybe it's the bush. Um, Maybe it's looking out over a spectacular view, somewhere breathtaking, somewhere awe-inspiring. Maybe it's just your bedroom with your Bible open. Uh, Maybe it's a church building, probably not this one, right? But (laughs) maybe at lunchtime you sneak into a church building and sit there and think. Or should it be a holy site? Should it be uh, a site of pilgrimage? Should it be Jerusalem, Uh, Mecca? Lots of people go there. Vatican City, where would you go to on earth to meet God? The Australian bush, of course, can be awe-inspiring, but you sit there long enough and you get 
get mosquito bites and things, and you think, is God really there? Church buildings, of course, can be still, can be contemplative, but is God really there? Where on earth can you find God? It's a hard question to answer because, of course, God is in heaven for a very good reason. Uh, He is God, he is immortal, he is radiant, he is majestic, he is holy, he is pure. We are none of those things, not in ourselves. So it's for our safety that God is elsewhere. But it's not, of course, as if we can go there and come back. So where would you go on earth to meet God? In Jesus' day, people went to the temple the one place on earth where God said that he would dwell. The temple in Jesus' day was a massive structure, 24 football fields taking up nearly a quarter of the city, much larger than its initial pattern, of course, handed down to Moses, the pattern of the tabernacle there, where the Israelites camped around, but that's where God was dwelling with his people. That was a kind of a mobile temple, that's why it was a tent. It was upgraded in the time of Solomon, once they'd made things permanent, to a more permanent building, a temple. Around 550 BC, that was destroyed by the Babylonians. Then it was rebuilt about 70 years later, a much smaller version than Solomon's one, but in Jesus' day, it had been transformed over a period of 46 years by Herod the Great. And in fact, work would continue until AD 61, which was only nine years before the Romans then destroyed it. Don't put your trust in renovations, right? For the Jews in Jesus' day, the temple was the place on earth where God was. And that meant that it it satisfied four critical needs or purposes. Number one, obviously, it was the place to meet God. Inside the inner chamber of the temple was the Holy of Holies. And that was the place in which, in Solomon's day, the gold-plated Ark of the Covenant had been. This had been lost during the exile. It wasn't there in Jesus' day. But above this, God would dwell in a cloud. The temple was the place to come and meet God. Secondly, it was the place of revelation, the place where you could go to hear God speak Not in the Holy of Holies, only the high priest could go there and then only once a year, but normal people would have God's mind revealed to you through the priests who would stand in the courts and they would teach the law of God. So if you wanted to know God's will for your life, how to live, you went to the temple to hear the voice of God in the word of God and be taught the mind of God. It was a place of revelation. Thirdly, most importantly, If you went there to meet God and you heard God's will, it then follows that it needed to be a place of atonement. Because when you came to meet with God and God had revealed his will for you, you realized how much your life fell short and you needed a place, therefore, where your sin and your impurity could be dealt with, where you could be atoned for, where God's anger could be turned away, you could be washed, you could be made clean. The temple was this place And you would bring an animal and you'd place your hands on it. You would confess your sins, sort of symbolically transferring them over. And then this innocent animal, now bearing your guilt, would be taken and sacrificed um, in your place. 
a sacrifice of atonement that turned away God's anger and enabled you to be forgiven. And then finally, place of meeting God, revelation, atonement, it was having your sins forgiven, then it was a place of worship. Of course, you could do this at any time in the temple, but there were three times a year where all the Jewish people came together, the feasts. And they would come and they would worship the Lord. And the temple singers would lead people in singing just like we've had here. And they'd lead people in singing the Psalms and spiritual songs. Jesus, as he grew up, would have participated in that temple life. The temple would have been familiar to him. But now in John chapter two, he has started his public ministry and he arrives at Jerusalem. He has just, if you were here last week, you'll remember he turned water into wine at a wedding up in the hill country at Cana. This was his first sign. It was a sign of the joy and the blessing with God that ultimately he has come to bring us into. And he comes down, although the Bible says he went up like you'd go, like in the UK, you go up to London, even if you're up in Scotland, you know, you go up. Anyway, they go to the capital. He comes down and goes up to Jerusalem, right? And he arrives at the temple, and that is meant to be the place on earth that the joy and the blessing that he has kind of heralded in the wedding miracle, water into wine, it's meant to be the place where all of that is manifest. And having arrived, what does he find? Does he find people from all the nations meeting with God? Does he find people listening to God's revealed words to them? Does he find people repenting and mourning over their sins and having their sins atoned for? Does he find people then worshiping the Lord in prayer and the song? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because instead of the entire outer court being available to people to come to meet with God, it is now a market. There are stalls where people should be. It's crowded out with commerce. And instead of it being a place of revelation of people quietly listening to God's words being read and taught and explained, the place is drowned out with the bleating of sheep and the bellowing of cattle. And instead of the place being a place of atonement and people mourning and confessing and there being atonement and restoration. Well, you know, the sacrifices are happening, but it's, it's all just transactional there. You can't bring your own animal in. You can't pay in your money. You have to pay in temple currency, which you get at the money changes tables where you are guaranteed to lose on the exchange rate. It puts a sour taste in your mouth. And then you have to pay premium price at the stalls to buy one of their animals at the crowded marketplace. And then amidst all the noise of of that commerce, even then your sacrifice becomes this simple transactional exchange just going through the motions. And instead then, of course, of the temple being a place of worship where everything works, the whole system works to encourage people in the worship of God, everything is set up for the worship of money. So the whole place, in other words, is defiled. Its purposes for which it was made have been corrupted. You came to meet with God, you came to hear from God, you came to have your sins atoned for, you came to worship God, you couldn't. So what does Jesus do? He clears it out. He makes a whip and he drives the animals out 
and he overturns the tables of the money changers and the coins scatter everywhere. And to those selling doves, he says, get these out of here, stop turning my father's house into a market. Now, I don't know how you feel about Jesus doing this, right? Because religious zeal is something today which frightens us. If I say the word religious zealot, what pops into your head? Suicide bomber, right? It terrifies us. And so maybe it's disturbing to us to now having to label Jesus in that category as a religious zealot. His own disciples see his actions. They remember the words of Psalm 69, zeal for your house will consume me. He's consumed with zeal for God's house. But we have to see Jesus is not a suicide bomber. He's not that sort of zealot. In fact, uh, did you know we are all called to be zealots? Romans chapter 12, verse 11, never be lacking in zeal, right? But keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. In other words, there's an attrition to complacency that Paul's speaking against. He said, don't be lacking in zeal. We're called to be fervent for the Lord. We say, yeah, but here Jesus was acting in violence. Well, maybe, but we note that no Roman guards came in to stop him. The Antonia Fortress, where the Roman guards were, was next door. It looked down into the courtyard of the temple. And if there was uprisings or thing, the Roman guards would come in, they'd quickly squash it. No such action from the Roman guards. Um, And neither was Jesus out of control. He wasn't lashing out in a way which later on he'd regret. Jesus made a whip of cords. Now, it takes time to plait a whip. Just think about that. He's not reacting on the spur of the moment. He may be acting in anger, but it's not out of control anger that just flares up in a moment and he'll regret later on. Exodus 34, God's character. He's slow to anger, which means God never overreacts. He might get angry, but it's always proportional and fair. Also, even if this scares scares us, even if we call this violent, it's his only violent act. He'll repeat this, by the way, on his last trip to Jerusalem at the end of his ministry when he sees the same things happening again. But he doesn't repeat it in the middle. (laughs) Um, He doesn't do this every time he enters the temple. And one thing's for certain, it had never happened before. And for us, that's helpful because it shows us, by Jesus doing this one violent act, if you like, it shows us what really, really matters to him. Doesn't this provide a window into what he really values as absolutely important? What's vital for him is that people have a place where they can come to meet God, to hear from God, to have their sins atoned for, and to worship God. These are really, really important things for Jesus. Maybe not to us, but to Jesus it is. And it tells us that they should be really important for us. To the authorities, it was an outrage. 
And when they ask, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? They're not buying Jesus' answer, God is my father and you've turned his house, my father's house, into a market. They want a sign. Now we may not feel their outrage, but still if Jesus has something extra to say about where we might meet with God and hear from God and find atonement and worship God, we're interested in the sign that Jesus might give. Show us a sign. And you can imagine him standing there in the temple looking around. You want a sign? I'll give you a sign. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. What a laugh, 46 years to build this temple. How could Jesus raise a temple in three days that's taken 46 years to build? And then comes the key point in the whole story. And so that we'll get it, and not miss it, John spells it out in a simple black and white dot point. And it is in verse 21. He says, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. The temple was his literal physical body. It was his body, that was the temple. Of course, it didn't make sense to the disciples at the time. It was a sign that would only make sense three years later. It was only after he'd been raised from the dead that his disciples recalled what he'd said. And only then did they believe the scripture and the words Jesus had spoken, that the temple, the real temple, was his body. And because Jesus rose with a body that's imperishable, the temple, the real temple, still is his body. Now you see what this means. It means, first of all, that the building in Jerusalem, that's the temple where you meet God or went to hear God's revelation or find atonement for your sins or went to worship, that's not the real temple. <laughs> that is a sign, those things are signs in that place which are fulfilled in Jesus himself. So let's think about this. What it means not to have a building as a temple but Jesus as our temple. And what we'll discover is that in himself, he fulfills all the different functions of the temple. So first of all, it's in Jesus, not the temple building where we meet God. And because we're in John's gospel, I want to show you this from the gospel of John. In John chapter one, John's gospel begins by describing Jesus in the beginning as the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. But then in verse 14, we're told, the word became flesh and literally tabernacled or templed amongst us. Which means that because Jesus is God in the flesh, 100% man and 100% God, that means that his body actually is the meeting place between God and people, right? And humanity. He's both in the same body. You want to meet God, you go and find Jesus, the, the meeting place between God and people. God is no longer met at the temple. He meets us in the physical body of Jesus. Second, it's Jesus and not the temple who is God's place of revelation, where God's will is revealed. We could go to many places for this, but even just sticking with John chapter one for the moment. In verse uh, 17, the law was given through Moses, but 
the two chief characteristics of God, his grace and his truth, came through Jesus Christ. A greater revelation. And then John says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known, has revealed him. Jesus Christ reveals God. Third, the place for atonement is not the temple, but Jesus' own body. John the Baptist announced this in chapter one when he saw Jesus and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Atonement at the temple required a high priest appointed by God who would then offer a pure unblemished sacrifice of an innocent animal slaughtered in the place of the guilty. Jesus is both. He is the high priest appointed by God and at the same time he offers himself. He is the perfect, sinless, spotless lamb of God who is sacrificed and offered once for all. In term three, we'll be going through the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. That unpacks all of that. But for now, it's enough to see that because atonement happens in Jesus' body, we don't need a temple. In other words, the cross makes the whole temple system redundant. The temple itself was never fully effective. It was only a massive brick signpost pointing us forward to Jesus. Jesus is where we go to for atonement. Fourthly, it is Jesus, not the temple, who is our place of worship. This is illustrated in John's gospel twice. In John chapter nine, there is a man who's been born blind and Jesus miraculously opens his eyes. And then um, that happens when he is away from Jesus. Then Jesus goes to find him. And when, he finds, when Jesus finds him and he realizes it, is, it was Jesus, this one in front of him now, who healed him, his eyes, his spiritual eyes are opened and he believed in Jesus and he worshipped him. The man worshipped Jesus and in doing so he was worshipping God. Or as we heard on Easter Sunday, when doubting Thomas's doubts were silenced by Jesus appearing before him physically in a locked room, Thomas worshipped Jesus. He said, my Lord and my God. What? What all this says is that Jesus really does turn the tables on religion. He fulfills the t everything that the temple was meant to be for his people. In Jesus Christ, we meet God. In Jesus Christ, God reveals himself to us. In Jesus Christ, atonement for sins is found, not at the temple. And true worship of God happens not at some temple, but in Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is the temple. He's the temple. Last point, therefore we need to come to Jesus, our temple. And I want you to try and personalize what I'm about to say for you. He is where you meet God. You say, hang on, but he, his body is not here. His body is in heaven, true. You say, well, how can I come to him to meet God? Well, Jesus himself points the way. In John 12, Jesus said, when we believe in God, we meet him. John 12, 44, Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. How so? Because John 14, verse 20, you will realize I am in the Father and the Father is in me, and guess what? I am in you. 
which means when we believe in Jesus, God comes to us, we meet him. You don't have to go to Jerusalem to do this. You don't even have to go to a church building to do this. You can meet with God anywhere if you believe in Jesus. So let me ask you, do you? Do you? Do you factor into your life time when you can come into the presence of God by believing in Jesus? You're meant to. Come to Jesus, your temple, and meet the living God. Secondly, come to Jesus and hear God. In John 8, Jesus said, I do nothing on my own, but I speak only what the Father has taught me. His words are the Father's words. So when we hear him speaking, by coming to him in his word, we hear God speaking to us. It's not like we're going to front up to heaven and discover that God had a different agenda or a different kind of mantra to the one that Jesus is saying. A different message. Jesus' message is the message of the Father. In John 14, Jesus said, these words you hear are not my own, they belong to the Father who sent me. And then Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, that will be enough for us. Jesus says, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me, doing his work. Now, I take it that all of us want to hear God speak to us. Well, you can. And we do through the Bible. Sometimes in our growth groups, people wonder, why must we always look at the Bible? Bible, Bible, Bible. I've been looking at the Bible all my life. Why not look at something easier? Why not look at a Christian book, perhaps? The answer is that this is the one sure way that we know that God speaks to us. It's, it is the way, in fact. It is the his word breathed out in the pages of scripture by the inspiration of the Spirit. It is no small thing to hear God speak. Christian books can be helpful. I've got a whole you know, library of them down there. You can, you know, I believe in Christian books. But there is power in the word of God which is not there. Power where I hear God speaking to me directly. Power for the Holy Spirit to take that word and do surgery on my life. Power to be corrected. Power to be rebuked. Power to be encouraged. Power to be warned from things that I'm blind to. The Bible does stuff for me that those books down there will never do. That's why we read the Bible in our growth groups. I need the physician's skill to cut me open and then administer the balm of the gospel to my life. And so do you. We come to hear God speak in his word. In Jesus' day, people came from across the world to the temple to hear God speak. Acts chapter eight, the Ethiopian eunuch, he traveled all the way up. He, he had a scroll of Isaiah. He didn't know what it meant. And then someone explains it to him. But he came from such a long way away. Well, guess what? Jesus is our temple. We need to come to him with humble and open hearts to, to hear God reveal himself to us. Thirdly, we need to come to Jesus for atonement. John, who wrote this gospel, says in his letter, which we call 1 John, 
Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He reminds us this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. When you think of your spiritual needs, what do you think is your need? You may not use the language of atonement. You may not think, I need an atoning sacrifice. That's what I need. But we all know what it means to have done things we regret. And I think if we're honest, we know what it means to feel inadequate and dirty. We wish there was chances to turn back time, to not do the things that we've done. Or wouldn't it be great to be able to somehow undo them? And although our memory of those things might fade in the passage of time, it doesn't mean that necessarily our record fades with our dimming memory. Though it would be good if it could. Well, guess what? Our record can be cleansed. In the temple, God developed this whole system which was designed to erase our sin and our guilt. It was a way for God to turn his anger away from us onto another. And you and I might think, how barbaric how primitive of God. But we forget that forgiveness always has a cost. And ultimately, someone has to pay. Suppose I borrow your car and I take it out, but I smash it, right? Now, I could ring you up and say, I'm sorry this has happened. And you can say, that's all right, I forgive you. But someone's got to pay, don't they? <laughs> I mean, if if you forgive me and say you don't have to pay, then you pay. Forgiveness costs. And you might say, look, it won't be any issue between us, but you know, you'll have to go through the insurance and pay the excess and whatever. Then I pay. But forgiveness always has a cost. Either way, someone pays. You say, but our sin against God isn't monetary. God should just forgive. Well, let me ask you, what if someone hurts your reputation? What if someone gossips about you? What if someone slanders you and makes up lies and spreads them around and trashes you completely and it's so that people begin to treat you like trash? What are you gonna do? You could pay them back. You could go and ruin that person's reputation, but that doesn't work. Or you could forgive them, but to do that would be to absorb the cost yourself. Forgiveness means absorbing their debt. You don't pay them back, but you, you cannot forgive them without you yourself suffering. You can't forgive without taking on the debt yourself. So here's God. He doesn't just look at us and see us carrying on our lives, destroying relationships in our lives and the world, and he can't just say, I forgive you, without him having to pay. And we're made in the image of God, which means if we have trouble forgiving, part of the reason, part of the reason, is that because we are like him. It's hard, right? God is so holy that he had to come and die. And he's so loving that he was glad to pay the debt, but it wasn't a small thing that he did, it was big. And the temple system which God set up teaches us this, but it was only ever a sign pointing to the cross and so every time we sin and we need forgiveness, we've got to come to Jesus and come back to his once for all atoning sacrifice on the cross for our sins. We've got to come to Jesus in faith because he is the place where God does business here. He is the place of atonement. Finally, come to Jesus 
to worship God. In John 4, which we'll get to in a few weeks, so I won't say much on it, Jesus speaks to the woman at the well, and she's a Samaritan. She lives north of Jerusalem, and she says to Jesus, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews down the south claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. In other words, there's a place on earth where you're meant to go and worship God. To which Jesus then says, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Meaning not at the temple. And then he says, a time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth because they are the kinds of worshippers the Father seeks. How do you worship God now? By coming to Jesus in faith and by receiving his Holy Spirit and then coming again and again alive to God through the Spirit of God and free to worship. That's how you do it. Worshipping in the Spirit is not something separate to Jesus. Next, next week we'll see in John 3 the way you receive the Spirit is by believing in Jesus. The Spirit and the Son are not divided, they go together. But the important thing to know is now when we worship God, we worship in the Spirit through coming to Jesus. Why? Because he's our temple. He is our meeting place with God. He is our revelation from God. He is our place of atonement. He is our place of worship. Come to him. Will you? Will you? Have you? Have you come to God through Jesus? Have you done it? That's why the temple was set up. That's why Jesus came. So have you done it? Some of us will have, verse 23, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. They came to Jesus. Will you? Actually, you need to. I'll tell you why. Verse 24. Because there's something wrong. Jesus would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind for he knew what was in each person. And that's why it matters so much that he is our temple. We need him actually. We need to come to him to deal with the darkness within. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus, our temple. Thank you that we do not need to go to Jerusalem to meet you, to hear you, to be atoned for, or to worship. But thank you we can do it now by coming to Jesus in faith. May this define our lives because Jesus is the wonderful one, our great temple. Amen. Let's continue in prayer. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we praise and glorify you. You have made yourself known to us, and in your great mercy, you have chosen to dwell among your people, first in the temple, then in Christ Jesus, and in these last days by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And we look forward to the day when we will dwell in your presence for all eternity. In the meantime, as we gather together as your people in the presence of Christ, your temple, 
let us come together in the unity of spirit. Please help us to grow in love and zeal for you. Help us to grow in maturity and faith and character.